freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Good morning. If I'm able to say good morning to everyone in America because it's it's 11 o'clock here in the East, and I've got Joe Kent all the way out on the other side. Not all the way. Yeah, pretty much all the way, right? Pretty much all the way. Uh, eight o'clock is nothing for him. He's the father of young children and former Green Beret. Mornings to him. This is the middle of the day for Joe Kent. Guys, this is a this is a great American. This is a person that we've already become the best of friends in mere minutes, hanging out a little bit, talking about things of mutual interest. We're going to try to share something with you. Good morning, Joe Kent. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, it is my pleasure. Uh, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? As After all, you're running for Congress. Absolutely. So grew up right here, out here in the Pacific Northwest. I actually grew up uh, just south of where I'm at right now in Portland, Oregon, which everyone knows for uh, how it became infamous in the last year as kind of a fallen city full of Antifa and anarchy and leftist uh, insanity. However, when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, it was actually a pretty nice medium-sized small town suburban life. Great thing about the Northwest, you can drive in any cardinal direction for a couple of minutes and you're, you are in the great outdoors. So I, I had a great childhood out here, was heavily active in Boy Scouts. Um, far back as I can remember, I just wanted to join the military. I don't know exactly why, but um, really from the time I was a really young kid, that's all I wanted to do. So this is all pre-internet. So just read books on Vietnam. Um, and then when I was 13 years old, the Black Hawk- You didn't come from a military family. This is not one of those cases where your dad and your grandpa you know, when your great grandpa fought in the Civil War, none of that. No, I mean, all of my relatives participated in the major wars, but they did their time and they got out. So there's no career military in my family. Both grandfathers were in World War II. Hardly said a word about it um, until actually right before uh, my uh, one grandfather, who I actually knew, uh, who I had in my life growing up, he didn't say much about war until. Um, I had been to war a couple of times and he, he said a few things to me and then other relatives, you know, mentioned to me, like, that's the first time he's ever talked about it. So not a military family at all. Portland, Oregon's not a very, um, there's not a lot of military around here at all, really. So I was just drawn to it. Uh, in 93, there was the Black Hawk Down incident, uh, in Mogadishu. That was, I think the first, uh, heavy combat that was really filmed in the modern media, um, that was CNN, but had just come online then. And so you saw these graphic images of, of Amer dead Americans being drugged through the streets of, of Mogadishu. And, and I was just amazed that there was, you know, folks out there that um, came from the same communities that I did that were out fighting in like savage combat for America overseas. So I was like, hey, who are those guys? And I found out they were Army Rangers. Um, I'd already talked to the military recruiters a bunch because I, I thought that maybe I could go in the military when I was like 15 or 16, but the recruiters wouldn't let me. Um, so <laughs> when, I, when I turned 18, I, you know, I went and said, hey, I want to be an Army Ranger. I want to be an infantryman. Um, enlisted and got to go do that. Spend about Hold on a second. Years. Hold on a second. Black Hawk Down, Mogadishu. That's what made you want to join. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to join before that, but that actually put a codified plan in my mind that I was like, okay, those guys are Army Rangers. They're out there in the hardest fight. That's what I wanted to do. But I might think that 
I was kind of interested in joining up. And then I saw what happened there and the lack of support and the lack of planning and the or lack of execution or something that didn't go very right and that didn't look very glorious. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people would expect that a young man who is interested in the military is attracted by visions of glory and victory and positive feedback. Instead, you you saw this extremely negative and nationally humiliating experience and said, I want in on that. Yeah, basically, I mean, I saw there was guys out there that were were fighting really savage combat and some of them didn't make it home and they got drugged through the streets of Mogadishu. Um, and I, I was just amazed that there was people in our society that probably grew up just like I did, um, that for all I knew could have been my next door neighbors, but they, they were the ones that had to go and do that for our country. There was the politics, put that aside. Um, that was probably too big of a picture thing for me to wrap my head around as a 13 year old, but also growing up high, heavily patriotic um, in the Boy Scouts and all that. I, I kind of figured whatever it was America sent them to go do was 100% the right thing. Um, and so if there was going to be people sent there by America to go do it, I wanted to be one of those guys. That was that was the mentality. And there was, in the neighborhood you were growing up in then, what is this, the 80s, the 90s? 90s, yeah. 90s. You already... It, it, was it unusual or was it still common to be patriotic? You know, a kid around that, like, if you want to rebel in Portland, Oregon, like you just go and enlist in the army. Um, and so I think there was some of that, but it, you know, even Portland in the eighties and the nineties, I think was just so different than what we have right now. I mean, I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts. Like I said, but had scout masters who were Vietnam veterans. My parents, even though they weren't in the military, were very patriotic. So I, I don't think it was as abnormal um, as, it, as it would be today, you know? So I, I felt like it was a fairly normal thing to do. A lot of that's because my parents um, were who they were and they said, yeah, going in the military is a very admirable thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be surprised if too many people in, in that district, I, I assume it's not the district where you live now, is it? No, I mean, where you're running not. Now. So yeah, we're in Southwest Washington. So I'm just, to the, the uh, north of Portland. So we're right on the other side of the Columbia River in Washington State. So uh, mileage-wise, it's not that far, but culturally, it's it's actually very different. So that's, a. I mean, I, that would explain, I suppose, why you are, uh, last, th last I checked, you're ahead in the fundraising among uh, GOP challengers. That's right, yeah. So you said something, a couple of interesting things. One was that um, the Mogadishu experience you were talking about, you know, you, that you hadn't grown up in that, you know, that, that sort of military environment. Before we went on, you and I were talking about this idea that there doesn't seem, I, I observed that there didn't seem to me to be any cadre, any sector of American life today that really is held responsible consistently for hitting the mark, getting things done right, executing, and not making excuses besides the elite um, the elite uh, forces within the military. And you, you know that seems to, st to strike a chord with you, not because you're former army ranger, but because you're looking around you and seeing the opposite in almost every other area of American life. 
I don't think that's right. Maybe, maybe there's some other segment of society that I'm just not aware of. And maybe that was the draw all along. And I, and I just didn't, I just didn't really realize it. I realize now being out, there's a, there's a certain group of people that I'm just used to being around where, you know, you, you can't make excuses. And if you do, people are just going to ridicule you and really not care um, that really your performance every day is what matters. And people really don't even care necessarily what you did yesterday. You, you could have saved the world yesterday, but what have you done for me lately is, is kind of like our actual unspoken mantra in the special operations community. So um, yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, there's so many parts of our society right now that seem to, want to celebrate, you know, the status quo, celebrate mediocrity, um, and really kind of put down people that are, that are striving for something better, which, which I think is kind of reflecting in just how adverse to any kind of, you know, conflict or struggle so many people in our society are. I, I, and that's, there's nothing more damaging to, to a social order than slack. Yeah. And we're living in a time of incredible slack. You yeah. know, there, there, there's enough wealth that in many families, people haven't had to worry about where the next meal is coming from for generations. I'm not ungrateful for that. I wouldn't want to have to worry about feeding my children and neither would you. But when, when you take that, when you take the, the, the pressure off and you don't bring it back on yourself through some sort of discipline, and the military is not for everyone, obviously. Um, I think among those that it's not for is probably among many of the people who are now leading it. As we were now, as we were discussing, I mean, the, the relaxation of, you know, we talk about relaxation of standards. On the one hand, your wife lost her life as a, um, in a, in a military conflict in the, you know, in, in action in the relatively new to someone my age, um, American, uh, what's the word, um, co-ed combat force. And on the other hand, when we, before we went on, you were saying, well, in your view, the, the women who were on the front lines had earned it. Those who were in, those who were in battle formations were there because they they deserved to be. Was that consistently the case? They, they you know were they able to to do everything their male counterparts could do? Yes, I mean as long as we used the women properly, I I think that especially the way that the global war on terror was, it was really an intelligence fight. We weren't fighting on fixed battles. We were going after insurgent networks. We were trying to topple repressive regimes, that type of thing. So there's a huge intelligence component. And women have always been involved in the intelligence game, going back to the Civil War, World War II, the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to special operations and the CIA had women in it. Um, so I think using women in that capacity has always been around and is always a, a good thing to do. That's kind of the, the niche that my wife fit into. Um, she found her way into the community because of her ability to speak languages and to collect intelligence. Um, so the women that I dealt with in that capacity, they very much earned their way there. Um, the problem, the problem, this is, this is going to sound funny because it's a complicated issue. The only times I saw it not work were when it was driven from the top down where there was some formable quota and, and people didn't want to touch the issue that maybe there's some places that we shouldn't send women, or maybe there's some skills that like these women, a particular group of women didn't have, but they were forced into a situation 
purely for optics because it became a hot button issue, especially, I can't remember exactly what year it was. We, we formally integrated women um, into our, into combat arms. I think it was like 2016 or so, right before the administrations changed. Um, and and I, I supported that. I still do support that because there had been women fighting in that capacity that had earned their way there. And so to deprive them of the title, I felt was unfair, but it took a really good leader to understand, hey, we still have to fall by, we, or we still have to abide by our high standards where we put the right person towards the right job. We never go with a quota system, you know, and I, I feel just because of the political pressures, so much of that has gotten uh, forgotten because so many leaders right now are scared to be the one that says, I don't think that that female is the right person to send to this mission because they, they know a minute later, they're gonna get accused of being sexist Best case scenario, worst case scenario, they're going to get me too'd or, you know, whatever. That's just the culture that's been created. And I think that culture is actually in the long run going to work against the women that have the guts to try out for these outfits. And I think that's actually a, a pretty tragic thing. You know, your army. So when you, when you say army, people think of the infantry. Right. And that's not really what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about special ops. Uh, intelligence-oriented um, missions, not, I mean, you know, even the concept of entropy that most of us have, even as recently as Vietnam, is hordes of guys on the ground marching in order or doing anti, you know, even if it's anti-insurgency stuff, you know, at the, at the military, you know, at the infantry, at the regular Joe level. Uh, were you in the service at the same time as your wife then? You were. It was, yeah. We actually met in a special operations unit right. that combines intelligence special operators. Um, I retired a little before she did and went to the CIA, and, and she stayed in until she was killed. Yeah. So I know you would have to kill me uh, if to answer my question uh, entirely, uh, fulsomely, but you were with the CIA. So uh, in other words, you, were, you had moved into the civilian intelligence community. What the hell's going on with the intelligence community? What is it as bad as the people who fill up my timeline seem to think? From what from you from what you can tell, I wish I could say no. I, I really do because the folks that I served with at the ground level, just like the military, the people that are actually out there doing what the American people pay the intelligence community to do to collect intelligence, to analyze it, to provide that data to, to decision makers. Um, those people are great patriotic Americans, just like the, the men and women that we we put on, on a pedestal that go and enlist in the military. I'd say it's the same dichotomy that we have between the rank and file soldiers and then the general officers. It's the same thing at the senior levels of the intelligence community. So a lot of the, the senior levels of the intelligence community, you, you get people there that easily either they started out as an intelligence officer in some capacity, some agency, and then at some point in their, their, their career, they make the decision that they want to go on the political leadership track. And then they make decisions in accordance with really the culture of Washington, D.C., the culture of the permanent administrative state, which leans, I think, authoritarian left. It's never, it's never a good thing to be a Republican unless a Republican administration is letting you have more authorities, which, for instance, under George Bush, we got more authorities to go to war in more places. The D.C. Beltway likes that. They liked Trump for the first two years of his administration because he inherited quite the problem in the Middle East where we had to go and fight ISIS. So Trump, despite all of his 
uh, personality issues, I think, that the, the deep administrative state hated because they didn't like the way that he talked about them. Trump still let them go ply their trade. Um, that was until, and this is kind of where my wife's story ties in, that was until Trump said, hey, we've defeated the territorial caliphate. It's time to bring our troops home. Um, that's when we saw the deep state really turn against him. But to answer your question about the intelligence community, the, the upper ranks are that we need to essentially have what I would say is like a new church committee or some form of massive reforms because what I saw at my very small ground level, I was a paramilitary operations officer. Paramilitary guys come from the special operations community. It's it's basically what you would think, what you would hope that your taxpayer dollars are going to, eliminating terror threats, that type of thing. Um, so my my optics on the greater CIA um, probably were a little bit limited. I did go to the farm. I'm, I'm a CIA uh, case officer. And so seeing the culture there, I think a lot of the problem is that the CIA and the intelligence community recruits so heavily out of our universities. And those universities are feeders right into the beltway, you know, and then also it, it's most of the people that end up in those positions, their parents had something to do. Their parents were part of probably government employees as well. It's this culture. It's become this entire cast of the permanent administrative state. And I think there's so many things we need to do. The first thing we do is really go after a lot of these senior leaders. And right now we know which ones have acted the worst that have actually abused the tools of the intelligence community and turned it against the American people. So I think that's where we need to start. And so when you, talk, when you say with the, where we need to start now, you're starting to sound like a candidate for office. Yeah. Now, I mean, is it possible to achieve anything if, if the if Republicans don't get a majority, at least in the House? Or at least, I mean, in one house, in one of the houses of Congress. Yeah, I mean, I think worst case scenario, if only a handful of us get elected, um, especially guys like me with my background, I think there's some specific questions we could at least call attention to. What I think the intelligence community and the DoD does this too. Really, they do really well is when they get asked questions by Congress. They have very impressive looking generals come in with a bunch of medals on their chest and talk down to a bunch of civilians who've never served before. And then there's that thing where the civilians don't want to call out the generals. And then you get these intelligence guys who come in and they say, I can't possibly begin to explain to you why we spied on the president, because if I do, or all of our secrets will be exposed, you know, it's classified. And so I think we need people that actually understand the system. I've dealt with intelligence, you know, for pretty much my entire career and then had formal training in the CIA to go in there and say, hey, look, guys, we we can discuss what people did without exposing sources of methods. And I have very specific questions I'd like to ask about all the different things where there's been abuse. Do I think start calling attention to that? Because I think the few people that have actually tried to do that, um, they've made great efforts. Like Devin Nunez is a hero, you know, like the way that he actually went after the intelligence community when nobody else would. Um, but I, I think he simply, simply put, he needs backup and we need people that can actually explain this stuff to the American people that look, there are some really bad actors here that are way beyond the per they're, they're acting way beyond the purview of what the intelligence community is supposed to do. And we have to clean that up. Um, so, well, well you've, you know, you've, you've, you've really segued right into my next question because it's one thing to say that there's an orientation, that there's an ideological predisposition. And another thing to say, or to come to terms with, I don't think it's, there's a serious question about it. There are there are people with a great deal of power in the intelligence community, some of whom are putatively retired, but seem to still have a great amount of power, um, who are like mafia dons. I, I, I mean, it, it, 
it's so you know if Congress were to magically it doesn't have to be magic I think it's quite plausible actually that both houses of Congress would become Republican um, unless as my friend Gavin uh, Wax says uh, oh, I got to find this tweet this is going to be this is going to be worth it. <laughs> um, the midterm, the 2020 midterm variant and the 2024 general election variant. Yeah. Okay. yeah so, so assuming that, assuming that, 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 oh yeah, I'm most worried about the 2022 midterm COVID variant and the 2024 general election variant. Okay. So let's, let's just assume 3320 likes. Gavin Wax is a great non-military American. Assuming nonetheless that it happens and you and we get control of Congress and you even have something like a new church committee. You want to explain to the younger viewers who are not, who don't have an intelligence background as you do in it, um, what the church committee was because a lot of them have probably heard the term but don't really know what it means. It's, 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 they'll be amazed to think that it ever happened because you, you could hardly tell based on what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I'm going to miss up my dates, but it's around the 60s or so. There was a bunch of uh, essentially oversteps by the intelligence community, by the FBI and the CIA, spying on political opponents, that type of thing, um, that were brought to light, believe it or not, by the media back when the media used to do things like right. this. Um, and then there was actually a formal congressional hearing. And from that, all of this was kind of brought to light and a bunch of reforms in the intelligence community happened, putting really strong guidelines um, and limitations on what our intelligence services could do to American citizens. Um, there's a bunch of details in there that people have to look, kind of look up on their own, but a lot of the uh, abuses of power by our intelligence community were brought out into plain light on the floors of Congress where, where actually I think they belong right now um, for the American people to see. And then from there, uh, different laws and restrictions were put on Congress to make sure that we're adhering to our social contract. So much of so much of what we have here in this country is beautiful because our social contract says that the people that have power over us, we get to choose and we get to have oversight over them. And I think when those boundaries are stepped, we run into a very dangerous situation where we could break the social contract. So I think to restore the social contract that we have with our intelligence services, we we need something like a new church committee again. Right. I, I, you know, it was in this it, it was abuses that took place in the, in the, you know, in the throughout the 60s. And, the, and one of the problems with JFK was that he was a unlike Eisenhower, who might have been they might have run rings around him, uh, you know, in the CIA. He at least knew that they were and he was worried about it. And as and as a former general of the army, he he had his concerns and he expressed them. JFK, on the other hand, was uh, a young, you know, former naval officer, very impressed with the James Bond stuff. Bay of Pigs seemed like a great idea. Um, the Dulles brothers were whispering in his ears, um, even though, you know, Eisenhower had, had left office. In the mid-70s, after Nixon left office, because of the, you know, I think it was probably also stimulated by the evident involvement of intelligence with the Watergate situation. Uh, Frank Church, uh, Senator, um, Frank Church was the, the head of this committee that was formed a special committee on the intelligence services. Yes, and there were all these reforms and they all seem to be being ignored. I mean, we, there's this widespread perception that a hell of a lot of the things that the FBI 
uncovers and FBI isn't really intelligence. There's to some extent counterintelligence, right? They're really law enforcement. Um, are things that the FBI has cooked up itself. And my former law school classmate, um, Michael German, Mike German, who went undercover and wrote a book about infiltrating um, white supremacists, militant white supremacists, has come out very strongly against this sort of activity. And he's been, you know, and he comes from the left but very critical of the FBI and a, a popular writer at The Nation, I think. Um, and the, he's with the Brennan Center now. My concern is, you know, I, I get the impression that after the church committee uh, reforms that the FBI and the CIA more or less did what they, what Congress told them to do. You have the impression now that they, that there are elements within that community and something's a little bit creepy about the intelligence community concept right it's not an agency it's a community it's something you could be a member of for life regardless of whether or not you're working there anymore but yet it's hard not to think that people who have this kind of power are going to be willing to give it up just because a bunch of congressmen even a former congressman like you with some exposure to it tells them to Big big thing too is is culture, and and I think all the church communities in the world won't be able to beat the the DC Beltway um, permanent administrative class culture, which, like I said, it leans authoritarian left because it's easy in DC to stay to be able to shift with the administrations if you're somewhere center but center leftish, and then always wanting more and more government authority, so kind of getting away from like the more left minded civil uh, libertarian types. Um, and that's that's the problem. And that's what I saw really come to light under the Trump administration. So by the time Trump came into power, I'd already been in the military for for a bit. I was kind of at the, the tail end of my my special operations community uh, time was going to move over into the CIA. And I, I was amazed to see how many mid to senior level leaders. I was kind of a ground level leader my entire time in the military, started on enlisted, then became a warrant officer and then a paramilitary operations officer. But to see the, the middleman, the ambitious middle management, I should say, the guys I knew that were hungry to be on the top floors of the, the intelligence community or the Pentagon, to see how quickly they would slow roll, undermine, or talk, just talk badly, to set the to set the cultural tone that like we didn't necessarily need to listen to the Trump administration. I was amazed to see how quickly that was accepted. Um, you know, going back to when Obama came in office, like the military, especially the special operations community, it leans right. It just does. Um, and that's a whole you know, different conversation. But when Obama came into power, we got read the riot act by our mid to senior level leaders that, hey, like a lot of you guys didn't vote for Obama, but don't forget the oath that you took. He is the commander in chief, like end of story, period. Um, when General McChrystal got fired uh, for talking bad about Obama, even though McChrystal was beloved at the time in the special operations community, across the board, everybody was like, well, that's what he deserves. Like, you you don't do that. <laughs> then just eight years later, because Trump had said, hey, man, maybe we got lied to about the intelligence for the Iraq war. And maybe I, I want to get these guys out of these wars that I think are dumb for very good reason. It was completely culturally acceptable to turn against him. And that's why when you see the high profile stuff, like we discussed, you know, Colonel Veneman and his testimony and the impeachment trial and all that, I, he he said some very telling things. He's he's actually a very valuable person, I think, for giving insight into the way the deep state thinks. 
when he was on uh, under oath, he said he said that uh, something to the effect of President Trump violated the policy of the United States government. And I, right. I was like, what? I was like, what? I was like, dude, were you and I in the same army? Like, I feel like we were like we both took the same oath. Um, that's not how this works, but that's an, an, an really important for people to, to kind of put in their heads because that's how the permanent administrative state thinks. They think that they set the policy. They don't think duly elected officials do. So I, I think it's we definitely need the formal church committee style hearings, but we also have to go after this culture of the permanent administrative state. And how would you I mean, any idea how you would go about doing that? I think a lot of this starts and, and, and people are going to get probably mad at me, but I think a lot of this starts um, with the college degree requirement for many of these positions. So I started out as a list of guy. I eventually got a college degree much later on, but my formal years were in the trenches as, as an infantry guy or as a special uh, forces guy. Um, I think the college system right now, the way our university system is structured, especially it's hard to get into the CIA. For me, it was a different path with special operations, but most people that try to get into the CIA there's a ton of Ivy League there. Like you, you're not finding a lot of guys from state schools um, that are just getting into the CIA on their first try. Um, the, the the upper level education folks, like they have a much easier, more codified uh, path into these intelligence communities and into like this the civilian leadership of the DoD as well. And so it's this really inbred culture. So I think getting away from a lot of that, those gatekeeping requirements that bring in a lot of people from upper middle-class backgrounds would do a lot to start to chip away at that culture. But then we also need to see when folks like Vindemann stick their head up and they expose how the deep state is working as duly elected officials, there has to be consequences for that. So that people see like, oh, I can't just make my own US government policy as a colonel or as a GS-15. It was an absolute train wreck the way he was dealt with and it didn't help that the Chief Justice of the United States, during the first impeachment trial, refused to let his name, it wasn't his, the whistleblower's name, yeah. whistle, but it was part of that same vague yes. misunderstanding of how things work and what the right. command and control structure was and, 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 and how Roberts, with, you know, and his appetite for compromise and uh, you know, institutional preservation overcomes other, at least equally valid values. That was one, you know, th that's, that is a moment that a lot of people forgot, but I thought it was extremely damaging. But so is the fact, you know, I mean, Trump was commander in chief and he could have said, I want, I want this guy Vindemann uh, court-martialed. And I'm sure that he did. And someone whispered in his ears, it's going to look like uh, political, uh, you know, uh, retribution. To which the response was, "Let a, let the the the, 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 um, the court martial decide that." But I, I, this is insubordination. This is right out of the box. And by you know, once you let that happen, and at the end of the day, he let it happen. Uh, you know, and I've seen a lot of people say, "Well, you have to understand, uh, there are all these." all the rank and file guys are really okay. And the the leaders just won't do what Trump says to do. And I don't understand why a guy who became, again, when I say I don't understand, I mean it literally. I'm not saying I'm a, that I know, that I would, I know exactly what I would have done and it would have succeeded. I'm saying, I don't know why. And what I don't know why is 
Why doesn't he say, listen, Monday morning, I want everyone who has been responsible for these redactions, these preposterous redactions of documents that are supposed to be uh, delivered to Congress. Uh, I want to know, I want them in here Monday morning and fire one at a time until he gets to the person who is going to do it right. He has that power. And if you tell me, well, no, there's the Civil Service Act, fine. But they can all be in charge of collecting phone books, okay? I mean, he, he could have, uh, now again, I'm told he got all kinds of advice, but you know, the buck, the buck stops here. And there's a real, I mean, and this is another issue also with Congress. There's a real accountability problem. I mean, I'm completely shifting gears here. And there is a tendency, I think, with guys like me who read a lot of history and a lot of military history to just want to talk about military stuff with, with army guys uh, all the time. But the fact is, accountability and Congress. There's a real sense that Congress, members of Congress play by their own, they have a completely different set of rules with respect to confidentiality. There's, a, there's your segue, confidentiality and military intelligence. Uh, you know, exposure of, 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 of intelligent, intelligence information to people who, if they weren't in Congress in a million years, would not get, um, you know, would, would, would not get clearance. But also in terms of ethical, I mean, how, how does somebody become a multi-multi-millionaire in Congress? I'm not saying that people should become impoverished in Congress, but well before he became, you know, the former president and was given all these preposterous gifts from the entertainment and publishing industries, Obama was a very, a well, a very wealthy former senator, a very wealthy former senator. Is there anything we can do about that? I mean, leadership, they benefit from this the most in Congress, and they're the ones, I think, who he's, you know, you don't hear Mitch McConnell talking about uh, re reforming the, these kind of practices. Yeah, I, mean, I think a big, a big step that we could take would be term limits on, uh, especially congressmen and senators. You know, when these guys start hitting the ten-year mark, nothing good happens after that. I mean, the, the, by then they they know the D.C. system. Um, I think the just the amount of money that's in politics, and I'm I'm feeling this now as a uh, as a candidate. You know, it, it is a money game. That's the first question people ask you is how much money have you earned? And a lot of times they don't care if it's individual contributions from like real actual breathing voters or if it's just like you just got money from someone as long as you got money in the account. And I think that would go a long way to get if we could get rid of the packs, we could get rid of dark money and then go after the lobbyists. I, I think we'd be taking steps in the right direction. I've heard people say that term limits are a bad idea because, boy, if you want to see the administrative state run things, just take, just do term limits and then they'll, they'll be in charge of everything. And I always thought the response to that was, how much worse would it be than it is now? That, I mean, I, yeah. that part of the equation isn't yeah. going to change. Yeah, I think you need people that, um, for lack of a better term, they're, they're not worried about getting reelected because they've kind of hit the end of it and they and there's no there's no more money they need from these specific special interest groups so they can actually go in there and, and do their job I think right now they're beholden to the special interests and then the administrative administrative state does run roughshod over them so I, I do think you need people that feel very 
empowered to make those decisions because the people elected them, but at the same time, not beholden to their next fundraising number. And I think the, getting the money out and then term limits would be the best. I'm at least willing willing to try it. I, I don't get the whole appeal of these permanent politicians that we have right now. Like the, no, that's right. The, the idea of, of being, yeah, being a, a, your entire lifetime is spent in Congress. In Congress, right. Uh, you know, it's just, that's definitely not what the founders had in mind. And if they wanted to, if they wanted to prevent that, they certainly could have put that into the Constitution. So it's not, you know, it's a it's a it's a concept, it's a principle, but it's not a law. We get that, but it's a disaster now. Um, I want to talk about what is ultimately a related issue, also, which is, uh, you know, and look, the theme of this podcast is really me, Ron Coleman, but and the people that I bring on and have fascinating conversations with, but we do try to have a conversation about, about uh, censorship in the First Amendment. And I do think that term limits and professional politicians are part of that because there's this access, this revolving door access phenomenon between the media and the Democratic Party in particular, which has really, I think, solidified the control over information in the country what what's your take? I know that this is something that you have that you know you're generally in favor of reform of Section 230. I saw that on your website. You know what? Let me. I'll give you that kind of broad open question to say your sure. position on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the discussions about 230, but I think 230 almost uh, is a distraction at this point. I think we just need to break up big tech, um, go after them like the monopoly that they are, because it's it's almost. I mean, the First Amendment is incredibly important. It's probably one of the most important things that we have. And, and big tech going after First Amendment, I don't think anyone, any sane person can argue with that, that they're suppressing people's First Amendment rights. But they're even moving beyond that, like the way that they can deplatform someone. I've had friends that are in the conservative space that are veterans that have these companies that they run off of, you know, internet-based platforms, Instagram, Twitter, all that. They've had their ability to make a living taken away. I mean, we saw what they did to Trump. Trump was able to recover from it because he's an independently wealthy billionaire. But the way that big tech can take away people's ability to even hold a bank account is something that I just don't think we've ever dealt with before as a society. And so I think for all those reasons, they fall well within the scope of a trust that needs to be broken up aggressively by big government. And, and I feel like we are on a very tight timeline to do that, because like you pointed out, the allegiance between the Democrat Party, the far left and big tech is moving us cl far closer to becoming a fully controlled authoritarian nanny state than the government could do alone. And they know that. I mean, just what, two weeks ago, we had Jen Psaki out there saying like, well, yeah, us and Facebook are totally working together to identify these people who are putting out information that we just frankly don't agree with. And a minute later, Joe Biden says, we have to do that because these people are killing people. And he's the president. And when he says someone's killing people, he then is putting, he, he has a duty to stop those people from being killed, even if that requires using force. And so now we have this really weird marriage between tech and the far left. And I think especially with the way that COVID has been weaponized to give the government more and more control, I feel like the vaccine passports are going to be, uh, the vehicle for that is going to be used through big tech. And so I, I think before that actually happens, man, we, we have to get in there and break up big tech because if the vaccine passports come to fruition through big tech, it's going to be really hard to walk that back because they're going to have so much data and so much control over all of us. I, I think that this is just an urgent issue. It is. You're right. 
You're right in thinking that. I haven't heard all that much you said that isn't right. And I endorse you, unless you don't want Thank me you. to endorse you. No, please. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> My first endorsement in any congressional, upcoming congressional race. All right. <laughs> um, you know, you, it, it's interesting that you brought COVID into this because at the very beginning of our discussion, you said something about this idea that there has to be a um, accountability that there that has no longer there in the intelligence community. And we were talking about the church committee. We spent 2020 having our institutions and our population and our judiciary trained to accept this idea that emergency decrees are an acceptable way to rule, and there's no other word for it, to rule what we all thought was a democracy. Yeah. This is a disaster. And then the media on, on their side creating this culture of like, hey, if you don't obey what the government says exactly, you're probably just a bad person. You're probably literally killing people. You know, you probably just don't care about other people. So the tools of the state being turned against folks who, ha who have legitimate questions and who want their First Amendment rights back, and then combined with this culture the media has created that's allowed certain segments of our society, the ones of power, to other the rest of us. I think that that's very scary. Again, like I, I spent a lot of my time um, as an adult overseas in pretty bad conditions. And the way that we've seen, I think, Trump supporters and people who question the vaccine being othered, that's a precursor to some of the darkest stuff that humanity has to offer. I mean, we saw that the way that Trump supporters are described as maggots, the way that the anti-vax people or the, the vaccine skeptical people are being accused of, of murder without doing anything but saying, I have questions. That right there, allows the state and other people to act violently against them. It gives them the social pass to do that. And I, I've seen this before in Africa. I've seen this before in the streets of Baghdad, Shia versus Sunni. This is how people start referring to each other. And this is all being done through big tech by the, the people with the most power against those of us who are saying, we have questions about this and we don't think this is very American. And so I, I think we are, uh, we're already pretty far off the rails and it's gonna be very difficult to get us back. And this permanent class of politicians we were talking about, they all got paid right. to 2022 through 2020. They all had their full complement of staff. They had all their benefits. They were not affected in any way. And moreover, they ignored and ignore the rules that were put out for others. Yeah, yeah. Talk about a two-tiered society. It's 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 really a problem. And yes, I do think that if that if people who feel the way you do and 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 speak the way you do get into Congress, you know, there are a lot of people who feel it won't make a difference because the system is so broke. And you think it can still? I think we have to try. I mean, I think if we don't try, I mean, for me, like I, I the way I the reason why I say I'm I'm running for Congress is because I have two young sons and, you know, my young sons lost their mother when they were very young. She was killed fighting for the country. And I have to explain to them very soon that, Hey, this is the country that she gave her life for. And like right now, if they were a little bit older and they could ask me those really hard questions, I don't know if I'd have a good answer, but I know that this country is worth fighting for because it's the country that I grew up in not that long ago was a very great place. I still think at our core, we are a very great place, but if we don't, if we become so bitter 
because we see so many factors working against us that we just let it happen, then we will be judged accordingly by history. And I, I think we have to fight like hell right now with whatever resources we have. For me, the woman that I voted for that was in my district, who's a Republican, she voted for the impeachment of Trump. So to me, that was like, well, what are you going to do, Joe? Are you going to sit here or are you going to go do something about it? But for other people, it's it's pretty much anything else. Showing up your school board, you know, the list goes on of ways that you can you can participate and fight back right now. So I, to all those people that are demotivated and, and think that it's not going to matter, like I get it. I, there's there's been days where I felt like that, but we're going to be judged by history. We're going to be judged by our children and our grandchildren. So if we don't go and fight right now, um, we're going to lose the country. And and when we get in there and we take the house and the Senate back in in, in 22, 23, like I hope we do it's not going to be easy. Like we are going to have the, still the full scope of the government working against us. And we're just going to have to chip away at this thing, like one, one hard fight at a time. So that's, I think people just need to realize that we have lots of hard fights ahead. One final question. You've been fantastic. What did your grandfather say to you when the, when you mentioned at the beginning that he had never spoken to you much about his about his um, experiences in the war. Uh, it was only at the end of his life when you had already been in the military for a while that he mentioned anything. What was it that he said? Yeah, he was a, a bombardier in, in World War II. We all, we all knew that. Um, and he flew uh, bombing missions over Germany. Um, he never shot down, but his aircraft took a good deal of fire, which we didn't know. And then just one day at the, uh, the breakfast table, he, he just started talking. He asked me if I'd been I'd been shot at and like what it sounded like. And I kind of described it. And he was like, yeah, it sounds a little bit different in an aircraft, especially when it hits the steel and it reverberates to the the entire airplane and the smell of smoke. And he just went on this description about being under fire, which I thought I assumed at that point in my life that he had just told that story before. And I had just missed it because I come from a really big family. Um, and, you know, and then like a. I think later on that that night, my grandmother and one of my aunts said to me, like, he's never talked about that before. We've asked him about it and he's never talked about being under fire. He's never talked about being scared. He's never talked about what it, what it, what it felt like to, you know, almost go down uh, overseas and have to get right back up, um, land the airplane, load up another set of bombs and, and go right back at it. Um, he just never talked about that before uh, up to that point in his life. So do you think it's necessary and this is a, a this is not a rhetorical question. It's a hard question. Is it necessary for us to have that experience of being under fire, at least every other generation, let's say, to retain the grit necessary to avoid that endless decline into slack that you see in civilizations? Or do you think is there a way to avoid that and and you know to without finding reasons to kill people in other countries just because, so that we can stay fit and ready? I do. I don't think it has to be a, a kinetic war, or a kinetic fight. I, I think the what the greatest generation really had going for them is that they had this big war that the entire country mobilized against. And it gave them this common sense of purpose. You know, whether you were a bombardier or storming the beaches of Normandy, or even one of the folks, one of the women who stayed home to build the country or keep the home fires burning, everybody had this this common uh, this common um, struggle they all went through. And I think that's been lost really since that generation. So I, I think we need to do a better job of teaching our history and teaching, hey, what, what's, what's always brought this country together is when we have a fight and we have a common enemy and we all have a common vision and a common purpose. War, obviously, like World War II, especially after Pearl Harbor gets attacked, is probably the easiest way to do that. I think that's why we felt so much unity right after 9-11. 
But then so much, the, the government screwed that up so much by allowing the military industrial complex to run amok, allowing the intelligence community to lie to us or allow the Bush administration to have the intelligence community lie to us to go into these different wars. So much trust has been broken, but I, I do think we have to get back. We have to let people know right now, I think, how deeply our elites have betrayed the country and how much of a, a perilous situation that's put this nation in. Everything from shipping our manufacturing overseas, hauling out our communities, allowing fentanyl to be pumped into our communities, allowing the big tech corporations to really just run amok and pump all this anti-American ideology. I, I think we have to bring that to light and come back from that with some form of a unity that gets everyone together on the same sheet of music. And, and I, I think I think a way to do that is really to expose everything that's happened for one, especially with big tech and intelligence community, but then also getting our manufacturing back to this country and allowing people to really invest in this country, breaking up these corporations and these uh, hedge funds like BlackRock that are going and buying up homes, buying up the ability for people to actually own a piece of America and pass it on to their kids. I think that's key. Um, you know, the, the external war, I, I think maybe a thing of the past. And I hope we don't have to go through that to find national unity. I think it's definitely the, the easiest way. Um, I'm not even so sure it, it is anymore. Yeah. I'm not even so sure it is anymore. I think right now that, that it is, it's accept, it is so acceptable to be anti-American in a way that, yeah. that, you know, during, during the nineties, uh, and, and the first decade of the 21st century, Democrats used to say the most patriotic thing, dissent is the most highest form of patriotism. They're not looking for any form of patriotism, patriotism now. Patriotism is, a, is, a, is an absolute negative. Joe, you've got your work cut out for you, but right now getting it to Congress is the job. Everyone go check out the website. What, tell the people where they can go to find out about your campaign and if they want to kick in. It's, it's uh, Joe Kent for Congress. That's right, JoeKentForCongress.com. There's a donate tab over there. Anybody can make any kind of donation. I really appreciate it. We're getting no PAC money. We're actually, um, I'm going against one of the Trump impeachment voters and she's being funded by Kevin McCarthy and the GOP. So I'm up against the GOP, the establishment and the far left. So, but we're, we're winning two to one right now on individual contributions from real actual Americans. The only thing keeping the impeachment voter, Jamie Herr Butler afloat right now is big PAC money. So five, 10, 15 bucks so people can help. JoeKentForCongress.com, really appreciate it. Joe, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Nice getting to know you. Take care. So long. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.